Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today in this episode, I'm going to explore an incident that could be best described as the Great Flood of 1904 in Southwest Michigan. Going back to as early as 1868 in Southwest Michigan, there have been records of severe floods. In fact, Battle Creek, which was situated along the Kalamazoo and Battle Creek Rivers, there have been major floods recorded in 1868, 1887, and in 1896 prior to the flood of 1904. Other similar towns and cities situated on the lower elevation ground adjacent to the banks of rivers such as Kalamazoo, Allegan, Grand Rapids, Ionia, Lansing, Homer, and many more had experienced similar floods prior to that date. What made the flood between March 23rd to the 28th of 1904 so significant in this point in time was not only the highest floodwaters in recorded history up to that point, but also that the waters did not begin to recede until after four days. The preamble to this disaster began earlier in the month of March, starting on the 14th, when, according to the Michigan Weather Center's archives, a snowstorm dropped a record daily snowfall across Lower Michigan. Recorded depths of 10.5 inches in Grand Rapids, 10 inches in Lansing, and 8 inches in Muskegon were reported. This snow would contribute to some of the worst floods on record for southwest Lower Michigan when it began to melt later in the month. According to the Michigan Weather Center archives, on March 24th, several storms hit Muskegon and Grand Rapids, resulting in tornadoes. The tornadoes unroofed five homes in Muskegon and tore apart others on the lakefront of Harrison Street. In Grand Rapids, 10 people were injured as the tornado damaged a church and several barns. The precipitation levels in southwest Michigan in March of 1904, according to the usafacts.org website, saw 19% of the counties in the region experiencing precipitation levels above the 20th century normal. Van Buren County being the center of the concentration and seeing the largest difference in rainfall in recorded history, radiating out to surrounding counties. On March 28th, temperatures had risen steadily to the range of 50 degrees across the region. This caused a melting of the snowpack combined with the intense rainfall, which resulted in the worst flooding on record along the entire length of the Kalamazoo and Grand Rivers. About half of the city of Grand Rapids would be underwater as the river reached an all-time record crest of 19.6 inches. This was two feet higher than the previous record and 4.6 feet above the flood stage. Water covered half the city and floodwaters reached 2,500 houses and 14,000 people. Many people suffered from hunger and exposure in that city. Several factories and between 200 to 300 businesses were flooded. Losses in Grand Rapids were estimated to be in excess of 1.8 million. In today's dollars, that would be 58.5 million. 
Rebellion. The Traverse City Record Eagle newspaper on March 29th reported that the citizens in Grand Rapids were getting around in boats, and when not in use, they were tying them up to their doors. The city was having problems with people stealing boats in the flooded district, and even made some arrests to set an example. Still, others were just taking to the waters in boats as sightseers, limiting resources for rescue work. The city of Lansing experienced the worst flood on record in 135 years, also causing extensive damage and loss of property exceeding $200,000, $6.7 million in today's dollars. In the same Record Eagle newspaper, it described that the sudden record rise of water had resulted in great cakes of ice piled up on the streets and yards of residences, and in some cases as much as 20 inches thick. The Battle Creek Daily Moon described the rising of the Grand River making the biggest flood ever known, stating, The water obeys no bounds. It has risen beyond all conception of those who have not witnessed its inroads into home and factory and its tremendous current of destruction on its regular channel. The great rise of water in Lansing came at night. It was augmented by rainstorms that started at 9.30 p.m. All morning long was a steady rapid rise. The flooding closed every factory along the riverfront, thus throwing out of the employment hundreds of men who were ultimately going to lose their wages for several days. In Lowell, the rising waters caused sections of the bridge to go out, and one section floated down and lodged against another. Floodwaters covered the Grand Trunk Railroad Station and tracks as well. Many parts of the town appeared like large lakes, and several stores, shops, and dwellings had to move their goods and stocks to second floors for safety from the rising waters. The streets were submerged four feet deep in flowing water. In Grand Haven, there was ice above the bridges caused by the flood for half a mile. The immense volume of water had taken out a new interurban bridge that had just been erected the prior year, and one bridge where rescue workers stood suddenly sank six feet deep into the torrent, and eight of the men narrowly escaped. The ice was floating on the surface of the water and slamming into the abutments and battering the girders of the bridges across the city. Additionally, about 150 feet of a pier was damaged or destroyed in the swift current. In Ionia, the high water mark was reached on Sunday the 27th and destroyed several local businesses including the Ionia Wagon Company, Cirrhosis Garment Company, and the Williams and Gorham Lumber Company. Candle and oil lamps furnished the only light as power was out all over the city. The Wagar Dam was severely damaged and a fire somehow erupted and destroyed 40 barrels of kerosene at the Pere Marquette Toolhouse along with the oil which caused a fuel shortage. Further compounding the problem, the Ionia Gas Company flooded and was put out of business, adding stress to the worsening situation. Railroads in all four directions of the city had bridges destroyed, leaving the city stranded in terms of supplies. The Ionia County Fairgrounds were also flooded, and an amusing note was mentioned that several old buildings that the city was tired of and had plans to tear down were taken a fancy to by the flood and relieved them of the responsibility of having to do anything about them. Surprisingly in all of this, in Plainfield, the Grand River only rose about three inches there, and they had limited ice issues, Plainfield being a town also on the banks of the river. In Niles, the St. Joseph Riverbanks rose 
windows in several streets in the heart of the downtown area were flooded. A tremendous amount of damage was reported to stocks and goods there. The town of Paw Paw also had its own share of the disaster, as the floodwaters washed away the electric light power dam, leaving the town in darkness. The bridges across Main Street in the town were also destroyed, rendering the river impassable. In the city of Olivet, they were practically cut off in every direction from the outside world by floodwaters. Bridges were gone in every direction around the city, and all wires were down, so it was impossible for dispatches of communication to leave the city. Galesburg was another city also entirely isolated. All services on the Michigan Central Railroad line and interurban lines were halted between Battle Creek and Kalamazoo, of which the village was dependent. Galesburg at this time was considered a frontier village, which depended on supplies from the lines of the interurban and railroad, particularly regarding baker's goods. They also drew power from Battle Creek and Kalamazoo, and the electric lines had been severed as a result of the damage and the flooding. In the nearby village of Augusta, the river forced its way through 2,000 feet of the gravel embankment under the railroad tracks and swept it away like sugar. In Kalamazoo, nearly every bridge across the river in the Kalamazoo River Valley was washed away over a distance of 50 miles. Several dams along the river had broken and residents feared that three new dams recently installed by the Kalamazoo Valley Electric Company would be destroyed. Over 5,000 people were thrown out of employment at factories as they were closed, including one paper mill in the flooded district. Several homes in the flood zone had been moved from their foundations and were ultimately destroyed. Battle Creek was inundated with floodwaters, being located on the confluence of the Battle Creek and Kalamazoo rivers. The Verona Bridge was swept away along the Battle Creek River, and 700 houses were surrounded by waters three feet deep in a section southwest of downtown, known then as the Bottoms. The Michigan Central Railroad was flooded and shut down. The mail carriers began carrying mail to residents by boats. The city was estimated, according to the Marshall Daily Chronicle of March 25th, to have experienced 150,000 in damages, an estimated 5 million today. However, the Battle Creek Daily Moon on March 28th stated the estimates of damage would be difficult to assess. What occurred in Battle Creek during the flood was somewhat unique to other sections of the region. The Kalamazoo River had begun to recede, but the Battle Creek River was still rising, prolonging the flooding in the city, according to the Marshall Daily Chronicle of March 26. Over 500 acres of Battle Creek was flooded, including damage to homes, factories, and retail businesses in the downtown area. Waters in the local mill wheels were as much as 11 feet above the normal running point, and backwater from the river flooded the floors of the gymnasium of the YMCA. The waters in Battle Creek would not fully recede to normal levels until the 29th and 30th of March. As part of the phenomenon of this massive flood all over the region, the population of muskrats were driven out of their homes along the banks of the rivers and carpeted some areas with the scurrying animals. One man in Portland, Michigan went out in his boat to hunt muskrats, and 
went missing. It was speculated that his boat had gotten too close to the dam, which was flooded, and he went over the edge and drowned. Additionally, the Michigan Central Railroad had to suspend service on their Detroit to Niles line for the first time in their history, primarily due to the flooding in Battle Creek, specifically from the Battle Creek River. Many of the train cars had been partially submerged underwater and the tracks flooded. Bridges along the line were impassable, even for the most cautious train operators. This caused a tremendous amount of commercial loss of revenue, resulting in the delay and loss of goods on the delivery lines into Chicago. Being on higher ground, the DTNM and Grand Trunk Railroad depots were utilized as temporary lodging for those displaced from their homes in the Battle Creek area during the flooding. The American Steam Pump Company, slightly higher on a hill, had water rise to their front door, but was able to stay in operation. They later donated the free use of their steam pumps to pump out local businesses in the downtown area. There was also a report in the Battle Creek Daily Moon on March 26th that a trainload of Italian workers who had been contracted to work on the Michigan Central Railroad had been living in a few train cars outside of the local food plant. They had to be rescued by boats from the rising flood as the waters rose and went into the bottoms of their cars overnight. In other parts of the state, there was also high levels of precipitation and flooding, primarily concentrated around the area of Saginaw, Midland, and Bay City, and the surrounding counties, where they too received an intensive amount of rainfall. The Shiawassee, Flint, Cass, Bad Rivers all flooded, along with the Swan Creek, rising nearly three feet in 24 hours. Midland was submerged for miles, and one culvert over the Snake Creek went out with a roar, ultimately tearing gaping holes through the roadbeds of railways, leaving rails suspended in midair. Train service in that area, as a result, was also suspended. Throughout southwest Michigan, over 10,000 people were made homeless from the disaster. Driftwood jammed rivers as waters receded, causing some flooded areas to remain submerged until these driftwood piles were ultimately cleared. The driftwood also found its ways into the streets and areas of downtown and piling up against buildings. Bridges, dams, and roadways were washed away or destroyed. Floodwaters, which started as early as March 24th in some areas, finally began to recede around the 28th and ultimately most areas were back to normal levels by the 30th. In the aftermath, many cities would revise their disaster plans. Additionally, it would take months and in some cases a year for damages to be fully repaired and restored. Some communities would change their water channels and allocate funds to engineer new riverbanks and dams with hopes to avoid future disasters. In Battle Creek, Alderman Franklin Starkey in 1908, following another flood, would demand a canal be dug in a straight line between the bends of the rivers to curtail any future flooding. He even went so far as to bring in civil engineers to investigate the digging of a deeper water channel to relieve the congested conditions from the Kalamazoo River experienced at times. However, it would take four more floods in Battle Creek in 1912, 1916, 1918, and ultimately in 1947 before the Army Corps of Engineers was brought in during 1954 to construct a concrete canal that today still exists in the city. The flood of 1947 had brought damages that surpassed even the flood of 1904, which finally motivated the long-term infrastructure change by city officials. 
Other cities across the affected areas of flooding in southwest Michigan over the many years would adopt similar infrastructure projects to prevent losses from flooding. However, there are communities such as Ionia that still experience flooding at times of high precipitation. I recently had to drive through that town and observe portions of the fairgrounds underwater and high levels of water along the riverbanks. So a headline in the Battle Creek Daily Moon in 1887 once described Michigan as being a state filled with mad waters. Perhaps there's no better description of the unpredictability of this natural force that still occasionally reminds man of its untamed nature. So that's the story that I have of the flood of 1904 and the ultimate disaster that it caused in many areas of southwest Michigan, resulting from a combination of a massive snowfall earlier in the month that had a sizable accumulation that created a snow melt, followed by an intense concentration of rain, which kind of brought about this perfect condition for flooding that had not prior to that date occurred in the region to that extent. There had been prior floods. None of them had been so deep and none of them had been so long and hanging around before the waters eventually receded. That was the significant difference between the flood of 1904. So that's going to conclude today's episode exploring the history of the flood of 1904. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take some time to leave a review about my podcast podcast on whatever app that you are listening to. It helps to make my podcast become more available to other listeners when you do that. If you'd like to find out more about me or contact me or even suggest to me some other historical stories that I might investigate for future podcast episodes, check out my website, michaeldelaware.com. If you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, you can make a direct donation on my website as well as shop for merchandise through the links that are provided there. And as always, I hope you'll join me next time as I take another journey into yesterday and discover more tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thanks for listening. 